We're in the book of Philippians. Uh, we're in Philippians chapter 2 tonight. So if you've been with us, you know that we've been looking at this letter from the Apostle Paul. And we've been saying that this is a letter where Paul is talking about the advance of the gospel. So right now we're in the middle of a pandemic. There are all kinds of disruptions and frustrations and chaos happening in our country. And yet Paul is, say, Paul is in the middle of a lot more than that. He's literally in prison. He's chained to a Roman soldier. And he's able to say that despite all of my hardships and suffering... God's word is not changed. The gospel is still advancing. And in chapter 1, he explains how the gospel advances through suffering. In chapter 2, which we're going to look at tonight, he talks about how the gospel advances through service. Chapter 3, how the gospel advances through standing against false teaching. Chapter 4, how the gospel advances through sacrifice. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to close out chapter 1 and look at the first half of chapter 2 uh, from this letter from Paul, the most significant missionary of the early Christian movement. And uh, as we do that, I want to invite you to look at that section with me, Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27, and I'm going to read from there to chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 1, verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Wow. Okay, so this is a letter about advancing the gospel. And in the very first part that we read, at the end of chapter 1, he says that what he is hoping for, for them, for this group of Christians that he's writing to, you got to remember, he planted this church. So these guys are near and dear to his heart. Uh, he says, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm. And he, he, here's, I think, a key phrase. Stand firm in one spirit contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. So he's talking about unity here. He's saying, look, like, I want you guys to close ranks with each other. The word he uses for contending is one man. It's a word <clears throat> that in Greek is the word athlontes. You can hear the word athlete in there. It's related, I think, to 
our word athlete. And so what he's picturing is kind of this idea of a whole bunch of different people, you know, maybe different racial backgrounds, different language backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, and they're all coming together. They're all closing ranks with each other, like, you know, like a, the, 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 the line on a football team. And he's saying, like, that is the kind of unity that I want from you guys because it advances the gospel, which is what this letter is all about. And so the question that that raises is, well, how, how, is he, how do you do that? How do you actually become a group? We're a group here at Thrive. Uh, we're a community here at Thrive. You guys have come from different churches. I don't know what churches we got represented here tonight, but we always have probably at least a dozen that are here on any given Thursday. Uh, we, we come from different backgrounds. We have different stories. Um, and, and the question is, how do you take a bunch of people who probably think differently, look differently, vote differently, and see them come together with a unity that the world cannot explain. Because Jesus said in John 17 that when his church, when his people are one, in the same way that the Father and the Son are one, then the world will know who Jesus is. Then the world will know who Jesus is. And so that's why this all ties back to the advance of the gospel. But the question that this passage raises is, how do you do it? How do you do it? What I want to do tonight is look at just two things I want to just examine a little bit more closely um, what this kind of community is that Paul is describing in this chapter. And then I want to look at the, the grounds, the, the, the way in which that this is possible. So uh, the first thing I'm going to look at, <clears throat> I'm calling the upside-down community. The upside-down community. And then we're going to see that to live as the upside-down community, you have to know, number two, the upside-down God. So the upside-down community and the upside-down God. So look here at chapter two again. And you'll notice in chapter two, that he starts out by saying, like, look, you guys are blessed. <laughs> He's saying, look, you, you, you guys have received God's encouragement. You've received his love. You've received his comfort. What he's doing is he's naming all of these things that can be true if you have come to put your trust in Jesus Christ. And look at this list. He's, he talks about encouragement. You know, that's pretty cool. You know, we live in a world right now that I think really would love some encouragement. <laughs> Um, he mentions love, any comfort from his love. Um, you know, he, he says that, like, if you know Christ, if you know, if you know him, then there can be a comfort that you can experience there. Second Corinthians chapter 1 calls God the God of all comfort. Uh, if any tenderness, any compassion. So he's giving you a big list of all of these blessings, all of these privileges that we have in Christ. And he says, you are blessed to be a blessing. So, you know, I don't know if you would look at your life and, and, and say, man, like, I really feel fortunate. Like, look at all of the things that I have. If you don't look at your life that way, there actually is grounds to do that. Because if you live in the United States of America, if you're, like, anything close to a member of the middle class, then you're wealthier than the vast majority of people on this earth. And, and what this is saying is that all of those blessings that you have, you're blessed to be a blessing. You know, in the land of Israel, there are two main bodies of water. There's the Dead Sea, and there's the Sea of Galilee. Now, anyone know here why the Dead Sea is dead? And by the way, if you're on the leadership team, you can't answer this because I already talked to you about this the other day. You say that's not fair. It is too fair. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, okay, so I hear salty, yep. Here, here's an answer for you. So, so the Dead Sea is dead because there's water that flows into it, and there's no water that flows out of it, and it's dead. But the Sea of Galilee, which is the sea up in northern Israel, it has water that flows into it and water that flows out of it, and it's teeming with life. 
And so if you want your life to be vibrant, if you want your life to be alive, you can't just be a, a, a spiritual hoarder. You know, if you're living and enjoying all of these blessings of coming to a place like Thrive and being like, oh man, I have all of these great Christian friends, this is awesome. But then you're not actually going out and sharing Jesus with other people. If you're not actually giving of yourself rather than just sort of taking for yourself, then you're going to become like the Dead Sea. The way to have true, like, vibrant life is to have an outflow, to have all the blessings that you're given flow out to other people. So you're blessed to be a blessing, is what he says. And just notice here some of the things that describe this community. I've mentioned a couple of them, but just look a little bit more closely. So, like, in verse, uh, let's see, down in um, verse 2, he mentions the word love. Um, Now, what this is saying is that the kind of community that he's trying to describe here, he's calling to embody uh, this characteristic of love. Um, I think one of the most convicting verses in all of Scripture, for me at least, um, is Romans chapter 12, verse 9, where Paul simply says, love must be sincere. Love must be sincere. I mean, I don't know how many times you guys have had this experience. I'm sure you guys are way more, you know, saintly than I am, but I can't tell you how many times I've had a moment where I've just like been in a conversation with someone and you just kind of start to, your, 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 your eyes begin to kind of glaze over, but you try to hide it because you pretend like you're really present, you're really engaged, and you're just like, uh-huh, mm-hmm, nodding, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And oh my goodness, like I just catch myself doing this, and the Bible says love has to be sincere. Love has to be sincere. So that's one characteristic. There's another characteristic here. He says that the, the kind of community he's wanting for us is what you might call um, a you-before-me community. Okay, so like the way that the world works is that it's a me-before-you community, where it's all about like how can I use other people in order to benefit myself? How can I like look to other people to like improve my career prospects? You know, how can I like use my you know, you just use other people in order to make me feel good about myself. And Paul says, no, the gospel takes that and it turns it upside down. And it says that the kind of community that the gospel forms is a you before me community. So it's a community that, that serves one another, that sacrifices for one another, that listens for one another, that, that forgives one another. And I just want to point out that these things that he's talking about here are in many cases the complete opposite of American values. So think about this. Like, we Americans, we love our privacy. You know, if you drive out to some parts, especially like in rural places, like I don't want to pick on anyone out in the Key Peninsula or anything, but you, know, you drive out there and it's like, man, like if I'm going to get to this person's house, I've got to pass all these signs that say, you know, warning, guard dog, and all kinds of fences. And, you know, we love our privacy. And Paul would say, that's great, but hey, your house is not your house. Like, your home is not your own. Practice hospitality. Like, you've been blessed to be a blessing. Or, you know, we Americans, we put a value on hard work. You know, we, we say, man, like, it's my money because I earned it. So, man, you know, the government better not come and tell me what to do with it. And I'm not going to get into that tonight. But, but look, Paul would say, regardless of what your political views are, the point is, like, your money is not your own. Because what do you have that you haven't received? What do you have that you haven't received? I mean, even if you did work hard, you know, where did you get the skills to do that? Where did you get the education to do that? If you hadn't been born into the family that you were born in, would you have had those same opportunities? What do you have that you haven't received? So the question then, like, you know, this all sounds great. You know, wouldn't it be great to get to be in a community that loves each other and serves each other and that's perfectly united like like a football team? But the problem, we have a problem. 
And the problem is that we don't live like that because, um, I, I suggest to you, one of the key reasons is pride. It's pride. Uh, you know, like, we are, are so quick to kind of do exactly what Paul says not to do in this passage. So if you look at this passage again in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Like, it's so easy to try to make an exception for yourself, you know? Be like, oh, I'm so tired. So I'm just going to, like, put myself first today. Or, like, I just, you know, I've worked so hard, I really deserve for other people to just kind of, like, pamper me today. Paul says, do nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Or as one translation puts it, count others more significant than yourselves. So, we've got this obstacle of pride. And, and Paul's point here is that, look, you can't live as the kind of, like, I'm calling it an upside-down community because it's just so different than the way that the world works. It's just upside-down from the world's priorities, the world's standards. And so the question is, like, well, okay, what, what do you do? How do you actually come together to be a community like that? And that really leads us into the heart of this passage, which is um, the this, this second bit, basically from verse 5 down to verse 11. And what Paul says here is that if you want to live as the upside-down community, then you have to know the upside-down God. You have to know the upside-down God. Can I read this one more time? I'm going to, I'm going to read from verse 4 one more time, and I want you to listen um, to just how Paul describes who our God is. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So who is the upside-down God? So some of you um, may have uh, grown up watching movies like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, and um, even some of the Marvel movies are like this. Uh, what is it about all of those movies that are, that's so popular. I mean, like, the Marvel franchise has made billions and billions of dollars. Star Wars, same thing. Why do we love those kinds of stories so much? Good versus evil? Yeah. Adventure. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Supernatural. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're uh, thinking of the Marvel movies in particular. They're kind of good, old-fashioned, mindless entertainment. Sorry, I don't mean to insult anyone out there who just, you know, has like a Disney Plus subscription just so they can watch all the Marvel movies or whatever. But, uh, okay, there was a guy um, who actually thought about this kind of thing. Uh, there was a, I think he was a, maybe an anthropologist or some sort of cultural analysis guy. Uh, his name was Joseph Campbell. And Joseph Campbell had this idea that there's, what, what he called it the monomyth. And the monomyth, he thought, was sort of this pattern that some of the most beloved human stories follow. 
And one of the key characteristics of what he called the monomyth is that it involves like the main character having sort of a death and resurrection moment. Now, you wouldn't have called it that, but just think about like all of these movies that we've just named. You know, like think about like the Harry Potter films. Like I don't want to spoil this for anyone who hasn't seen them, but I'm going to do it anyway. But you know, there's the moment where like, there's a moment where Harry has to sacrifice himself in order to kind of achieve victory over, over the bad guys. Or, someone covering their ears back there, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> or even think about a movie like Star Wars, where like the, the, the heart of that movie is when Luke Skywalker finds out that he is the son of Darth Vader. I'm like, stop, oh my God. <laughs> Whatever, you guys are just messing with me. Yeah, but you know, like, even that's kind of a death and resurrection where all of a sudden his identity is completely demolished and he realizes that he's someone that he didn't think he was. Every single story that we love has a moment like that. And this passage shows you that the original story is the story of Jesus. Look at what this is saying. What this is saying is that Jesus was in very nature God and that he chose to step down from his position of power and authority and and glory and worship and might in order to stoop down to wash our feet. I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact that the hands that formed the universe are the very same hands that washed the dirty, grubby feet of the disciples, human beings just like us. And this is so crazy, especially if you take into account the, the culture into which Paul is writing this. If you were to go back into the ancient world, the humility that Paul is saying that Jesus showed in this was completely opposite of the way that things were back then. Humility was not a virtue in the ancient world. You know, Aristotle, he was one of the great philosophers of the ancient world, and he came up with a big long list of all these different virtues. You know, there were things like courage and, uh, you know, all kinds of other ones that I can't remember, but I'll tell you one that wasn't on there. It was humility. He did not think that humility was a virtue. And you can see why, because humility literally means to, like, make less of yourself. Like, it's to diminish yourself. It's kind of like this form of death. And so why would you ever think that could be a virtue? Or, or on top of that, think about, not to, not to uh, get political on us, but think about the politics of Paul's day. You know, when Paul wrote this letter, Emperor Nero was on the throne. And Nero was the complete opposite of of the picture of Jesus that Paul gives in this passage. So did you know that Nero became emperor at age 17 because his mom likely poisoned his predecessor? And then Nero ordered the poisoning of his own stepbrother. Then he ordered the murder of his own mother. According to one account, he kicked one of his wives to death. Rome caught fire, and then he blamed the Christians for it. And he took Christians... And he coated them in tar and pitch, and he set them up as, as literal burning lampposts in the city. You know, he probably was thinking, man, you guys say you're the light of the world? And then on top of that, he commanded that a gigantic statue of himself that was 30 feet high be set up in the middle of the city that, and perhaps in large part, was you know, his own responsibility for letting crumble. And then his life ended in suicide. If you look at the life of a person like Nero, his life, you could say, was all about climbing up the ladder. What can I do to get above other people? What can I do to put down other people so that I can be at the top? You know, I'll just kill my brother 
kill my mother, you know, kill anyone who gets in my way. His life was all about climbing as high as he could up the ladder. But then you look at Jesus. Jesus had way more power in his little finger than Nero could have had throughout his whole life. And Paul says that Jesus chose not to live in a me-before-you way, but in a you-before-me way. And he climbed down the ladder from heavenly glory all the way to the lowest spot. He was born in obscurity. He was born in poverty. The King James Version says in this passage that he made himself of no reputation. You know, just think about how often you and I think of our own reputation. You know, like, what is it that you're doing when you're on Facebook or you're on Instagram and you're scrolling, 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 and you see other people's lives? And you look at other people's lives that might seem like they're going a little better than yours, and you just, like, think of all the reasons that, like, well, you know, their life might be going well, but, man, if they only knew what I went through, you know, then I could feel okay about, like, how my life is going. You know, or, like, we just look at other people and we, we, we try to tear them down so that we can put ourselves on the pedestal. Like, just think of how much, like, we are trying to build up our own reputation. And Jesus said, I'm willing to make myself of no reputation. I'm willing to literally come into this world in the weakest, humblest possible form because I've got nothing to prove here. Like, I don't need to pretend to, don't, don't, don't need to, to seek after all the things that the world seeks after. And these days, like, we need to hear this more than ever. Like, if you've been following the news, you'll see that one of the things in the news this year is that there's been a lot of talk about statues. And statues are basically just people on pedestals. And when, when like, over the last couple of months, we've seen so many people tear down statues, it's been people's way of saying that, you know, look, we don't think that that person deserves to be on that pedestal. Like, we, we, we need to, like, show that they don't belong there, so we're going to literally tear them down. But here Paul is saying that Jesus is the only one who did belong on a pedestal. He was the only one who was worthy to have that privilege. But that Jesus wasn't pulled down that, from that pedestal. You know, the Bible says that, you know, the, Jesus says that no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. No one pulled Jesus off that pedestal, but he chose to step down from that pedestal in order to step onto another pedestal, which was the cross. That's what the cross was. If you read through John's gospel, you'll realize that John speaks of Jesus' crucifixion as kind of this upside-down enthronement. You know, Jesus and John says that just as, the, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, chapter 3. Or chapter 12, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And so, like John is saying, Jesus is saying, the cross is a kind of pedestal of its own. And I chose to step down of this, off this pedestal of glory in order to step onto this pedestal of pain and suffering and, and, and humiliation. And one of my very favorite ways that I've ever heard this put um, is from some old hymn that I've never heard sung, that probably none of us have ever sung before, and it goes like this. It says that his holy fingers made the bow which grew the thorns that crowned his brow. The nails that pierced his hands were mined in secret places he designed. He made the forest whence there sprung, the tree on which his body hung. He died upon a cross of wood, yet made the hill on which it stood. And when you hear that, you just can't help but think this is all backwards. This is all upside down. 
Like, how can the word God and servant go together? Like, that, they go together in this passage. He, t- he took the form of a servant. The hands that formed the universe washed our feet. It's all upside down. He was enthroned on a cross. He was crowned with the curse. And if you remember in the book of Genesis, the, the thorns were the sign of the curse, and Jesus is crowned with a crown of thorns. The very last thing that God did before humanity was exiled from the garden was he made us clothes. The very last thing we did to Jesus before we sent him into cosmic exile was we took his clothes. He's the upside-down God. He treats power in a way that's completely different than every politician, than every king, than every ruler, than every other human. And I want to show you tonight that if you believe in this upside-down God, if he's the God who's at the center of your life, that is how you can live as a member of the upside-down community. And just as we conclude all this, I want to just point out three things that happen when you know the upside-down God. Number one is trust, number two is love, and number three is worship. If you know Jesus, as this passage shows, then you can trust that God is going to take care of you. You can trust that God is going to take care of you. You know, like, if Jesus took his hands off of his life so that you can take your hands off of your life, as I think Tim Keller puts it. There's so many things that you can look to to try to find your sense of security in. You can look to money. You can look to family. You can look to career. You can look to other people's approval. And all of those things are going to let you down. You know, it was said about John Rockefeller. He was one of the first, I think, yeah, maybe the first American billionaire. He had a lot of money. And it was said of him that he lived for many years on a diet of crackers and milk because of stomach problems that he had because he was so worried about his money. Like, he thought that money was serving him, but really he was serving money. You know, you might think that you're, like, if other people are serving you, that when they kind of like you or they approve of you, that, you know, man, you're kind of really being served by that. But actually, it's the other way around because what happens if you don't have their approval? Your life is totally crushed. You're actually serving them. You're serving what they think of you. Jesus is the only one who is never going to let you down because he's the only one that can be trusted to be, to, to, to be the steward of our lives. And... Um, <clears throat> Like in, in the Gospel of John in chapter 10, remember when Jesus is talking about uh, the, the, the Pharisees and how the Pharisees think that they're blind. This is actually end of chapter 9. The Pharisees think that, they're, think that they can see, but really they're blind. That's what he says. And he goes on to talk about how the Pharisees, um, you, know, you can kind of compare them to these bad shepherds. Like they don't, you know, they're not good leaders of the people. But then Jesus comes along as the good shepherd. And it says that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The reason that you can trust Jesus with your life is that when he had infinite power, look what he did with it. He stepped off the, off the throne and came down and washed our feet. You know, if that's how Jesus uses his power, then doesn't he have the ability to, to don't, don't, don't you have the ability to trust him with your own life? So number one is trust. Number two is love. You know, one of the things that this passage ought to raise for us is like, hey, why did Jesus do what he did? Why did Jesus do what he did? And, and the, the, the passage actually kind of hints at the answer, and I would suggest to you that it has to do with the fact of who Jesus was. Uh, so this passage says that Jesus was in very nature God. Now, if you think about God, what does it mean uh, for God to be God? It means that he doesn't need anything from us. 
You know, like God didn't make us because he was lonely and he needed companionship. You know, because from all eternity, we, we know that the, the, the Father, the Son, and Spirit were in perfect fellowship with each other. So he didn't make us because he was lonely. He didn't make us because he needed our worship. He had plenty of angels for that. The only thing that, that Jesus stood to gain, that he didn't have already through humbling himself and going to the cross, was us. Was us and our salvation. And if that's true, if he really went through all of that for us, then we can rest in the Father's love. Uh, many years ago, I heard a story about this old painting that this family uh, had somehow inherited or they you know, somehow had in their possession. And there was this old family joke that this painting, that, you know, they, they had some kind of connection to Michelangelo, and so they, they called it the Mike. And this painting, you know, they, they just sort of thought, you know, oh man, like <laughs> kind of this funny old heirloom. And eventually, they just kind of wound up, I think, sitting behind their couch, and they just sort of didn't think much about it. Well, one day, someone had the bright idea to get the painting appraised, and it turned out that it was an actual, original Michelangelo painting. And I want to say it sold for something like $300 million, you know, some huge amount of money. Now, that painting was always worth that much, that was always worth that much money, but they never knew because they had never asked how much it was valued for. And you may be sitting here tonight and you may not actually know how much value you have. And the way that you know your value is not what other people say about you. It's not what a boy says about you or what a girl says about you or like a, you know, a significant other says about you. The way that you know how much you're worth is because of how much someone is willing to pay for you. And I want you to know that on the cross, Jesus Christ paid the highest possible price to buy you back. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And man, if you've received Christ's love, then that means you can have a full tank. Um, another Tim Keller phrase, you can practice love philanthropy. <laughs> you've got so much love, you can actually give some away to someone else who needs it. Love philanthropy. And then finally, number three, worship. And for this, we're going to end with just the, one of the best, most amazing passages in all of Scripture. It's the last couple of verses of our section. Verse 9. Jesus humbled himself, became obedient to death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right now, like as I am saying all this, there are people who are counting votes from our crazy, chaotic, undetermined presidential election. And everybody's talking about it. And why are we so concerned about this? We're concerned about this because in the United States of America, the office of president is the highest place. The person in that position has the most power, they have the most ability to determine the direction that our country goes in. This passage is saying that regardless of whether the votes go toward Donald Trump or regardless of whether the votes go toward Joe Biden, sorry to both of them, but the highest place is already taken. Jesus Christ is in that highest place. He humbled himself to the uttermost, and therefore God exalted him to the uttermost. And I want to ask you tonight, who is in the highest place in your life? 
Who is in the highest place in your life? Are you here tonight and are you living for another person's opinion? Are you worshiping another significant other? Are you putting yourself in the highest place? You know, there are many people in our world today who say, oh, your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. I'm just going to live in sort of this all truth is relative kind of way. And I heard a preacher, I think this was John Piper, who said once, the reason we love that is because in a relativistic universe, the person in the center of that universe is you. You get to call the shots. You get to decide. And Jesus comes into this world, humbles himself, dies on the cross for us, is exalted to the highest place in order to say that he is Lord. He is Lord. And he is Lord over every single one of our lives. He deserves our, 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 our faith, our love, our obedience. And I just want to ask you tonight, have you actually put him in the highest place? Have you actually received the joy and the peace that can come from no longer trying to be God? If you're trying to be God and if you put yourself in that highest place, that is exhausting. That is where anxiety comes from because you're constantly trying to control all of your circumstances You're constantly trying to figure everything out all on your own. And no one can do that. No one can do that. When I try to do that, it sucks. Don't try it. (laughs) But if you put yourself and do what Jesus did and climb down out of that spot and put him in the highest spot, then that's where true life comes from. Some of you might have sung uh, one of my very favorite hymns, actually, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Anyone know this? And there's a part, I just want to end with this. Um, this is just so amazing to me, and it's, a, it's kind of about what we've been talking about tonight. It says, when I look at the cross, when I look at what Jesus did, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. See from his head, his hands and feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the upside-down God. No matter who gets elected, no matter what tomorrow brings, he is in the highest place. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this. Thank you that this is good news. Thank you that we can trust you with our lives. And thank you that you were willing to humble yourself to the lowest place so that we can trust you and give our lives to you now that you're reigning in the highest place. In Jesus' name, amen.